You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Micron. It's warning on its China sales again amid those geopolitical tensions, sending the shares lower. We are going to discuss chip companies. Are they diversifying their supply chains? We'll discuss. Plus, we'll speak to the head of the Diablo universe at Activision Blizzard as the video game maker sees its best debut of all time. And billionaires at lunch. Elon Musk, Bernard Arnault. They hit town for a power lunch in Paris with their families. We'll break down exactly what we've learned from their day out. But first, let's check in on these markets because we've got some nervousness, whether it's around geopolitics, China, US-related when it comes to Micron, nuclear when it comes to Russia and Belarus. We just have enough to take the steam out of this market as we head towards the weekend. And what has been, of course, a key run-up post the Fed, I think it's been one of the best weeks for global stocks in months, at least since March. We're seeing Nasdaq currently down a tenth of a percent at the moment. The stocks, the chips under pressure as we talk Micron a little bit more in a moment, Ed. I know you've got your eye on that. And interesting moves that we have in the bond market. We seem to be rebounding. We had yields pull lower yesterday. Today, the March back higher as we have a couple of Fed speak out there really saying, look, we've still got to focus on inflation. Maybe we do still need to tighten. Moving on, have a look at what's happening to our risk asset of choice when it comes to the tech sector. We are looking at Bitcoin and look, it's had quite the volatile week, and particularly on the 14th and the 15th, but we've rebounded still under some pressure. We're sub that $26,000 level, but relatively sanguine when we think about all the regulatory focus on this particular asset, Ed. I'm hitting the earnings story with Adobe. And yes, it's about generative AI as well, raising its full year outlook for profit and revenue. But we're starting to get a sense from management about how we go from the headline and the hype to how this is impacting a company like Adobe's uh, demand, right, for its software offerings. We're going to get more details later in the show in the Bloomberg Intelligence React. But look at the shares. We're up 2.5% since that commentary overnight, trading at a February high. This is a stock that's up 50% year to date. Part of that is the hype. We will give you the granular detail and analysis from BI. 
Otherwise, I'm looking at a tail of two chip stocks. In the first instance, Intel is now down half a percentage point. It had been markedly higher. Two reports out of Europe. The first, that it's going to invest $5 billion in a facility in Poland. The second being that it will get around $11 billion of subsidy from Germany. We're going to get into that very shortly, this idea that Pat Gelsing is playing with the smart capital approach. You use CapEx, you use co-investment, but you also look at publicly available money as well. That stock has turned a corner and then Micron down 1.6%. It's warning that sales from its customers that have Chinese headquarters, that 50% of it's under risk. And we're going to talk about why. But basically, this is China looking at a cybersecurity crackdown, and that could hurt Micron in the long run. We're going to actually go straight to this. I think, Cara, we've got a good guest with you on set. Yeah, our very own Paula Penkel of Bloomberg Intelligence, who can really break down ultimately how much Micron's already tried to pivot, already tried to tell the market, tell the street how much exposure they have from the geopolitics it can't control. But why this addition? What else is happening at the moment? Well, first of all, um, Mark Murphy, CFO um, of Micron, recently said at a Goldman Sachs conference on May 31st that even though they provided this guidance, that they were still uncertain because China never really defined what they were looking at and what this critical infrastructure security risk really entailed. So it really doesn't come as a huge surprise to me, um, yet the market was sort of like relying on Micron's guidance of low single digit to high single digit percent impact on revenue. It's higher than that, now it's low double um, digits, 12, 13%. And ultimately, what can it do when it's so dependent still from a client perspective on China? How, how are you seeing them try to diversify? Because yes, you can diversify your supply chains, but how do you pivot away from dependence on selling certain gear to certain customers? Micron's in a really tough spot because they don't want to give up the huge um, China market. It's significant. And when they recover, and when the Chinese start buying smartphones again, and when all that picks up, I mean, Micron wants to be a part of that. Yet we've got this whole drive in the US to decouple. So they're trying really hard to sort of keep relations good with China, yet at the same time, diversify to other regions. So I would, I think that there will be diversification. We're seeing it happen. We're seeing capital going into other regions in the world, um, away from China and South Southeast Asia. But if you look at what we saw announced just today, Micron is putting $600 million into a test and packaging facility in China. Is China pushing them to do that, coercing them to do that, using a ban on their product um, as some leverage? I don't know. Or is it Micron basically saying, you know, at some point tensions with China will go away. This is a huge market. We want to keep our finger, you know, we want to stay in there in right. that market. Uh, Paula, let's stay global, but recap some of the other headlines from the top of the show. Bloomberg reporting that Intel will get about $11 billion of subsidies from the German government for a chip plant in that nation. This is part of the smart capital approach that Pat Gelsinger has been telling me about. CapEx get some co-investors, but get as much money that's available from the public sector as possible. What's your reaction to that reporting? Look, um, Pat Gelsinger is being really smart. He is angling in every way he can to get as much money as he can to keep his costs down and to widen 
and broaden his reach in the market. I mean, Germany is a great market to be in and um, partnering with the government is a smart move and Pat Gelsinger continues um, to just make really smart, you know, chessboard moves. All right, Paula Pankel, Bloomberg Intelligence, great to have you on set with New York. Let's continue the conversation, the global narrative around security chips with Chris Rulin. Now, he's the CEO and founder of Phosphorus Cybersecurity, but also served as an advisor to the U.S. government on cybersecurity issues for the last three decades. So Micron and this story, Chris, warning about the impact to revenue, but, but the cause is, is a clampdown by the Chinese government in the context of cybersecurity. What do you make of that? Well, what we see here is the playing field being set for really a next generation of economic warfare that's happening right now. Um, the Chinese have been stealing ideas uh, from American companies for years. Um, and in the case of Micron, Micron might need to think about what type of technologies they can actually export and build in China, knowing that they're at risk of, of uh, being taken or reproduced. Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating, Chris, is actually it was but a day or so ago, Bloomberg had a story that Micron is still investing. They're investing $600 million in terms of trying to still build out in China, still trying to think about a packaging plant in particular there. Paul has said it so right. They don't want to lose out on an economy that is still eventually going to rebound post-COVID and is a key consumer. How Will we ultimately be separate? Will we have one technology economy versus another? Well, when, when we have a situation where foreign state actors are actively rewarded and hacking into United States companies, American CEOs are actually going head to head with uh, these state intelligence agencies. And it's a serious challenge. And I think there will, there will always be risk management in how we how much of our technology we have built and, and share overseas versus in the United States. And I do think we see a, a pullback there and, and some more conservative behaviors across the board. In the world of technology, we also see Bill Gates in China, Chris, meeting with President Xi and, and reports from the media saying that Xi in the conversation would welcome US AI companies to China and have their technology in that nation. From a cybersecurity perspective, how does that work in practice? Well, the United States is great at cybersecurity. Our, our government has eye-watering capabilities in cybersecurity. The Chinese are ahead of us in AI. TikTok has been the biggest experiment and successful adventure in artificial intelligence. So the thought of our artificial intelligence technologies shipping them to China, I don't think is a very good idea until we either alter this behavior or really lock ourselves down and take this threat seriously. China plays the long game. They want to take our ideas. They don't want to make iPhones for us. They want to be Apple. They want to be Micron. That is the long game. The other adversaries, Russia, other, other state actors, where they're, they're more interested in near-term economic game, like ransomware, have different motivations than the Chinese who are playing long game on intellectual property yes. theft. Uh, Chris, bear with us, Caroline. I think we've got some breaking news on the subject of China. Yeah, Anthony Blinken, of course, currently set to be on a trip soon enough to China, currently telling us in a news conference he looks forward to his Beijing trip overall and that he wants open communications with China. Chris, 
to that end, when we're seeing such breaking news when it comes to a geopolitical narrative that we remember that Anthony Blinken was meant to be with Xi Jinping or indeed in China, and then a so-called spy balloon ended that back in February. Today, how much more risk is there from a cyber perspective, from a technological exchange perspective? Can we ever really see sort of bridges being built from your perspective, from a political perspective, and then indeed from an economic one? Well, I think there's really a cultural issue. The Chinese don't feel it's wrong to take other people's ideas and implement them. They will keep doing this. Not much has changed in the cyber landscape in the last three months, other than the fact that in the last week we've seen three major cyber attacks, two of them attributed to China. Uh, for, For this visit going on, if you were having lunch with someone who had just broken into your house, you might want to talk to them about it. One way of putting it. Phosphorus Cybersecurity CEO, we thank you so much. Co-founder there, Chris Ruland, with some perspective on all the ever-growing geopolitical headaches that certainly are swirling around Micron. And we look towards that meeting between Anthony Blinken and indeed the Chinese leader. Meanwhile, another story we're watching, JD.com, on track to emerge from a record sales funk as a bounce back in parts of China's economy begins to revive the once booming online commerce sector. JD Retail CEO actually joined the program. Xin Li Jun, expecting that the commerce revenue will grow starting from the second quarter after a 2% decline in January to March period. He spoke exclusively to Bloomberg. I think our service revenue will grow relatively steadily in the second and third quarters. It's still hard to say how much it will grow, but it is part of the overall ecosystem for marketplace merchants. So long as we do a good job in the infrastructure of the ecosystem, the growth will remain healthy. about Adobe after its numbers. Shares actually on the up after the company raised its full year revenue and profit just a bit. And the outlooks, of course, surrounding the optimism of generative AI. The features that they've been introducing really spurring demand for the software and indeed for the shares. What, they're up about 50% so far on the month. Anurag Rana of Bloomberg Intelligence joins us now. Fascinating how much this company seems to have swung from what many felt was behind the curve in AI to really leading it. Yeah, you know, one of the things I would say is going back six to nine months ago, there was a lot of discussion around, you know, increased competition in the creative space. And frankly, Adobe was facing very tough comparisons in that segment uh, uh, for this year. But they have shown that they can still grow that segment in low double digits despite, you know, tougher comparison, more competition. And I think that's the key reason why we are seeing, you know, the the stock uh, reacting the way it is today. Anurag, why are you shining a light on Adobe's creative tools in a tough macro environment? Well, the reason is because it makes over for more than 70% of their sales and the rest of the, the business, which is the digital experience business, which is tied to more enterprise spending, you know, they actually pulled back guidance for that particular segment, which is what we were expecting going in. But to our surprise that the one that is, you know, tied with SMBs and consumers, that's holding up very nice new users coming in. They are, you know, spending a lot more for those products, whether that's, you know, Acro, um, Acrobat, Photoshop, Illustrator. Uh, which basically says that everything that has to do with, you know, creating more, uh, you know, digital imprints, whether it's pictures, videos, or, or even digital documents, that remains very strong. 
A reminder, Adobe raised the outlook for its profit and revenue in response to what they're seeing with generative AI demand. Do you buy management's optimism, Anurag, that that translates into top and bottom line growth? See, that's going to take some time. It's probably going to take one to two years before we really see a big push into that. But the one thing you have to think about is, in this particular area, who are going to be the winners? You know, in our view, there are two distinct categories uh, of companies that are going to you know, be the winners. The one that house a lot of capital that they can invest in to create new products. And the second one, the ones that have a lot of data. And there is nobody out there that has more data on digital documents than Adobe. There is nobody out there that has more data on you know, the number of pictures and videos uh, somebody is creating. So from that point, Adobe does have an advantage that it can commercialize some of that underlying data with you know, new technologies. Some of the overhang remains Figma, the deal, whether it gets done, the regulation that still needs to be jumped through. Anurag, does it matter ultimately how important is this enormous deal for them? You know, it's actually very funny. When the deal was announced, everybody hated it. And then in six months, everybody is worried that if the deal doesn't go through, Adobe is going to be in trouble. But I actually uh, defer from that particular uh, you know, thesis. We think Adobe should be fine with or without Figma. In the, if anything, the last two to three quarters of results have shown that they can still grow the creative business without Figma. And you know, to be honest, that size of a business growing 13 to 14% organically in constant currency is pretty impressive in our view. All right, Bloomberg Intelligence, Anurag Rana with the React to those Adobe earnings. Thank you so much. A story that we're also following, Caro. FTC Chair Lena Khan has declined to recuse herself from a case against Meta, despite the advice of the agency's top ethics official. That's according to internal agency documents. The FTC's ethics official recommended that Khan remove herself from the case to avoid the appearance of bias, but left it up to Khan to decide, con concluding it wasn't an ethics violation if she took part. Meta had sought to disqualify Khan from participating in the case over the company's proposed acquisition of a popular virtual reality startup within. Now coming up, Elon Musk, Bernard Arnault, the two richest people in the world, they go out to lunch. The big question, who picks up the check? We'll have more on that next. And really quickly, Caroline, it's been a weird 24 hours. We're watching shares of Nikola. They're on track for a record weekly gain. I'm at my desk last night. Trevor Milton, the founder who has been charged and found guilty of securities fraud, breaks a three-year social media silence to tell investors to vote against all company proposals at the upcoming AGM. Shares now down 2.83% in the session. It's been a wild ride. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. 
Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time for talking tech. First up, international cooperation is needed to properly regulate crypto firms. That's according to France central bank head Francois Villeroy, who spoke earlier at Viva Tech in Paris. He stressed that the European Union was ahead in crypto regulation. He noted that a new version of the EU regulation, Mika 2, would be needed to tackle crypto conglomerates. Also at VivaTech, AI is bursting onto the scene. A French startup called Mistral AI has already raised a whopping 105 million euros in funding, despite being barely a month old. French President Emmanuel Macron is pushing to make the nation more attractive to tech and AI businesses. Plus, the world's two richest people, Tesla CEO Elon Musk and Bernard Arnault of LVMH, are together. They got together for what we're calling a power lunch. The meeting follows a Viva Tech event to which Musk spoke at. Both men share a combined wealth of about $426 billion. That, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Caroline. Now, stick on that because, well, we know that Elon Musk went on to take to the stage at France's tech event, Viva Tech. It's a conference they hold each year. Had a lot to say about AI. Take a listen. I'm in favor of AI regulation because I think advanced AI is a risk to the public, and anything that's a risk to the public, there needs to be some kind of referee. That referee is the regulator. And so I think that uh, that's my strong recommendation is to have some regulation for AI. Busy old time in Paris for a Friday. Bloomberg's bureau chief, I'm very pleased to say, staying a bit late for us, Alan Katz. So what do we make first of Elon Musk even being there present? He was, of course, meeting with the wealthiest man uh, as well, but also meeting with Macron, too. This is about bringing technology to France. So Elon Musk has talked about creating a battery factory in Europe, and uh, he's got sort of lots of European politicians uh, essentially begging him to do so. So he met with, as you mentioned, with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, earlier today, and and Macron gave a tweet of him shaking Musk's hand saying, let's work together. Um, He met uh, yesterday with uh, the Italian leader, uh, Giorgio Maloney, um, and and he's apparently talked about potentially putting the battery factory there. People have talked about Tesla putting this battery factory in Spain. And so he's sort of got, as sometimes happens with these kinds of investments, sort of politicians 
desperately trying to get him to invest in their country and is using that uh, as a way to sort of um, you know, gather them around him. And, 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 and he has made himself the center of attention in that respect. Thousands of people, Alan, at Viva Tech. Elon Musk walks on stage. There's a big reaction. Talk to us about kind of the star power of this man in France in particular. So, so it's a funny thing because um, France is not a very pro-business environment in many respects. Uh, I mean, it's become much more so under, under Emmanuel Macron, but still sort of in terms of popular public opinion, business people are not generally heroes here in the way that they can be uh, in the U.S. Uh, specifically. But Elon Musk has managed to really transcend that. Um, you know, in addition to meeting with politicians, as you pointed out, he had lunch with Bernard Arnault, um, who, by the way, even though, again, their, their relative uh, wealth goes back and forth on who's the richest man in the world, Arnault is not like a star like Musk is. I mean, he walked into this room, you could feel the energy and the desire that people had for Musk to, uh, to be there. They had to move it from uh, you know, their original venue to a new uh, place where they had 4,000 seats so they could fit all the people who wanted to come see him. Uh, when yes. At the end of this, of this sort of 45-minute session, when, um, when Musk agreed to take questions, it was, it was like pandemonium in the hall. It was really, yes. He really is like a, a rock star, which is very surprising here. And Musk has just retweeted that Macron tweet. Our thanks to Bloomberg's Alan Katz, Bureau Chief out in Paris. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Carrie, for the final time this week, let's get a check-in on these markets. Interesting, we're kind of treading water, chopping and changing between gains and losses on the Nasdaq 100, up a tenth of 1%. But we are on track for our best week since March. A little bit of Fed sprinkled in there, a lot about artificial intelligence. Some of the mega caps on a points basis have pushed that index higher throughout the week. We'll get to in a second, the SOX moving to the downside off by two tenths of 1%. A lot of negative headlines for those chip makers that we can pass through. US 10 yield higher by six basis points, 3.78%. And Bitcoin actually pushing higher by a percentage point around 25,800 US dollars per token. But we actually have kind of seen it above that in terms of levels in recent days and weeks. Specific movers, so much of this is to do with AI. When you think about the single names moving in both directions, if Mr. Director, you'll do your magic. Thank you very much. Intel higher by three tenths of 1%. Another name bouncing around. Bloomberg exclusive reporting about $11 billion of subsidies in Germany for a new chip plant there, according to sources. Microsoft coming off that fresh record high Thursday, off by four tenths of a percent. And then NVIDIA continues to see gains. When will this end? The momentum in this AI-related stock, because everyone wants the GPUs, more near-term Adobe, pushing higher, February high, up 50% year-to-date, raising its outlook for profit and revenue because of the demand for its generative AI offering. Caro? And there is the exuberance. But on the flip side of the exuberance, when it comes to AI, of course, is some of the concerns, the nervousness, and therefore the policymaking that needs to come. And in fact, look, policymakers around the world are trying to grapple with this. They're harping on about how to better regulate artificial intelligence. But there are concerns that some fundamental aspects are being overlooked. In particular, we're pleased to look for insight from Jennifer Polker, founder, former executive director of Code for America, the author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the digital age and how we can do better. Jennifer, your book is fascinating because it's not only about thinking about to regulate AI and technology in the here and now, but ultimately also how to implement it and how we're failing to implement regulation at large. And that's a technology solve that could be there. But first, just 
give us your thoughts as we look ahead to next week. The EU might indeed bring us the AI Act. How do you think policymakers are doing at looking at artificial intelligence? Well, the good news is that they're paying a lot more attention than they have in the past. Uh, and actually, that Congress has gotten a lot smarter about tech over the past couple of years, uh, in part due to efforts um, uh, with Tech Congress and organizations like PopVox Foundation, where they're really out there helping get people with great tech skills in and around Congress to help them be able to have just a more deeper understanding of the core technology and the kinds of things it's going to do to our society. There's some bad news, too, which is that this is going to be a lot harder than some of the tech challenges that have come at our government in the past. AI is just you know, going to be far more disruptive. And the truth is that we really don't know what it's going to do to us yet. We don't understand it the way that we at least are starting to understand things like social media. Okay, so when we think about also the immediacy of the issues, what we've heard on one front is the anxiety about ultimately AI causing mass extinction. That seems to be some of the issues being proposed by well, Sam Altman, the guy leading the charge when it comes to open AI. But then there's people who try to really remind us of the here, the now, the issues of bias, the, the issues of already using facial recognition and AI in when it comes to recognizing crime. What do you think policymakers need to be looking at from a short-term and longer-term perspective? They need to understand that there's different types of threats that come with AI. There are certainly societal type threats. Uh, there's, yes, certainly existential threats like this ex extinction. And then there's the threats of what humans might do with it, what bad actors might do. And the kinds of policies that will address these different types are going to have to be quite distinct. So you're going to need people who understand what the technology can do today, more importantly, what it is likely to be able to do tomorrow. But you're also going to have to have really smart policy people mm. who understand how to create policy that's adaptable as we learn what these technologies can do in these areas. And of course, with each of these areas of real threat also comes real potential benefit. And we need policymakers who are going to understand not just how to mitigate the downsides, but how to make sure that we as a society get the advantages of what upsides these things can bring. Jennifer, it seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only six weeks when Vice President Kamala Harris gathered the great and the good of the world of AI and said that the White House would do something. Have they done something? You know, the executive branch has its own special relationship to technology, much like uh, the define the Define branch. that special relationship for us. What do you mean by a special relationship? You know, my book looks takes a sort of historical look at government's relationship to technology, going all the way back to the 60s, uh, when we define technology as something commercial. It would be something that government would buy, and therefore powerful people in government would need to really understand how it works. It'd just be something you buy, the way you buy pencils or cars. And over time, we've had attempts by the legislative branch, like in the 1990s with the Clean Cohen Act, to say, 
This is something more than just a tool of the mechanicals here in government, the people who implement things. It's actually fundamental to our society. We need people in government who understand it. So in 1996, uh, Senator Cohen and Representative Klinger asked the, the White House to take responsibility for a digital strategy. And in fact, they said no. They said uh, that's inconsistent with the policy nature of this institution. It's operational and therefore not something we should do. So in that case, you had Congress actually being more forward-looking, saying this is something we need as a core competency in our government, and the executive branch saying, nope, we're not going to do it. Now, sometimes we've seen that in the reverse, where you have the executive branch really, you know, having things like the Office of Science and Technology yes. Policy, trying to have people who understand technology in the building, able to participate in critical conversations, and you had Congress behind for a while. So they kind of you know, weave in and out of, of, of having the competencies they need, but I think both now really see that you can't separate technology from governing. You yes. really must have people who understand it at the table when policy is being made. Jennifer... How important is education? I'm talking about children at high school, any level, in, in, in the AI story in this country and globally. You know, our kids today are sort of growing up in a very different world than we did. They're getting an education just uh, in their daily lives. I do think they need to understand how these algorithms are going to affect them, as you said earlier, that there may be bias in them. And the degree to which AI is so hard to actually see what is going on under the hood needs to be part of just a basic literacy that our kids get. And uh, we need, that needs to be built into policy as well. Our thanks to Jennifer Polker, author of Recoding America. Right, another story that we're tracking. A new lawsuit is accusing X Corp, formerly known as Twitter, of profiting from copyright violations by using music on its platform without permission. A slew of music pub publishers presented the suit in a Tennessee federal court, alleging that Twitter routinely ignored or dragged its feet on takedown notices. Twitter is one of the only major social media platforms that does not pay music rights to holders for licenses to their work. All right, coming up, back to it. Generative AI's impact on customer service. We talk all about that with May Habib, co-founder and CEO of AI platform Writer. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. 
It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Seventy percent of customer facing time is wasted on non-productive work. We can now automate a wide variety of interactions. When you think about the ability for businesses to serve customers in lower cost, more efficient ways, AI is a huge accelerant to what they're trying to do. Our users love that they don't have to do this drudgery. Uh, they can spend more time with customers. We believe in a human augmented AI. Customer AI is really the intersection of all these new capabilities of generative and predictive AI and combining that with the customer journey. Think of this new world where your employees can become even more productive where they don't have to do the mundane, boring, routine tasks. So it doesn't necessarily mean like eliminating jobs, mean eliminating the drudgery from our day to day. Those are just some of the thoughts of our guests from this week when it comes to how AI can improve everything from customer service to how employees do their daily jobs. Let's bring in writer, CEO and co-founder May Habib for her take on that, because that's what you do. But so does everyone else, apparently. (laughs) What is writer's point of differentiation? Yeah, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. So we are a full stack generative AI platform. So what that means is we are both the foundation models as well as the application layer on top. And what we allow enterprises to do is build their own generative AI use cases. A lot of the AI that is being built into the applications that are used across the enterprise don't have the enterprise's own data or brand or context. Um, And so the information that is being put in front of folks is just not good enough. Uh, And there is a lot of talk about uh, how AI can help people and reduce the drudgery of work. I saw the segment earlier. But professionals don't look at their day as drudgery. Uh, And so we are really helping enterprises figure out what are the use cases that bring people uh, and AI together um, to make everybody just a lot more productive. We had Mylan Thompson Bukovec, uh, who's AWS Cloud VP on yesterday. Bedrock essentially offers the same thing. What do you make of that argument? Sure. sure. So we've got an announcement coming around where our foundation models will be offered. Um, But regardless of that, um, what we are seeing is this need to connect the the output from the generative models to the actual use cases. Right now, at a lot of companies, we have executives almost like deer in the headlights. Yes. Right. Really frozen, kind of panicked because you've got AI and AI-associated risk uh, being built into a lot of the 
tools that their employees are using every day. They don't really know what to make of it. They've got APIs that they can use uh, to access foundation models. Um, but then there's this huge gulf between the technology and how you actually operationalize that. And that's where we come in. It's the technology and the methodology to actually roll out use cases function by function, team by team, in ways that actually get adopted. Okay, May, you're teasing us. What's the announcement? <laughs> Um, so our, our models can be hosted on-prem and in private clouds um, of enterprises. So um, it is a really exciting, um, uh, real uh, jump in the ability for enterprises to control their generative AI rollout. Nobody wants another shadow IT apocalypse here with 100 tools being used across their companies, um, all of them accessing different models that all mm -hmm. have to be risk assessed. Nobody wants that. Okay. So on-prem, that's just sort of winning formula vis-a-vis -vis a cloud offering. The It really speaks to me, the whole deer in headlights. I feel like most consumers, most people are ultimately deer in headlights at the moment, trying to understand how their world gets upended, how their job gets upended, but how they ensure that they got the right skill set. How are you thinking about your own team, how you're thinking about enterprises you're working with, getting their workers into that line of skill set? Totally. The first thing is we've been doing AI since before it was the start of the entire, you know, the, the, the center of the world's conversation. And so we are not going into enterprises like a hammer looking for a nail. We actually start with the workflows themselves. So what are your people doing in marketing, in comms, in service, in R&D um, that is really bottlenecked? And how can AI be used to reinvent the workflow? It's a radically different approach um, because we are thinking about AI enablement of the individual employee versus here's a shiny new tool, how can we implement it day to day? Writer raised Series A November 2021, $21 million, hasn't raised any funds since. Well, I guess you're making money. <laughs> Look, we'll have you back on. When you're ready to do a round, I know you're getting a lot of phone calls from VCs. We'll have you back on. May Habib, writer, co-founder and CEO, thank you for your time. Activision's Blizzard Entertainment Unit seeing its biggest launch ever with the release of Diablo 4. The action role-playing game has already surpassed $666 million in sales, and that was in the first five days. The best opening for a game in Blizzard's history. Delighted to say that joining us now is Rod Ferguson, Blizzard's general manager, but you're basically the head of the entire Diablo universe. So the game comes out June 1st. And in the first four days, 93 million hours of gameplay, which is equivalent to 10,000 human right. years. Right. What is the latest number of gameplay two weeks later? Uh, we're up to 350 million hours now of play, so it's pretty right. exciting. I think what's so interesting about this is the widespread adoption of the game. Can you tell us which console or platform is Diablo 4 been played on most? 
Well, I mean, it's sort of the the Diablo franchise is a, a long history, has a long history. It's 26 years old, and it started its roots were really in PC, and so it's kind of that's been its main platform throughout its history. But that's one of the things we really focused on with Diablo 4 is we wanted to bring Diablo to a wider audience, and as part of that, we really wanted to embrace console and controller play because you can play with controller on PC. So while PC is the predominant um, platform that you can play on, we've seen a lot of growth in our console. In fact, Xbox said it was you know, Blizzard's fastest selling Xbox game as well. And so we're really excited about that new audience we're bringing in. So on that note, I have to then ask, when you think about the Activision Microsoft deal, what is the benefit to the Diablo universe? How does it help you grow? Well, I mean, that's all still ongoing, and so you know we think that the the deal is great for competition in the marketplace, and uh, there's a lot of great things that come out of that. But I, I'm not really the one best to speak to the acquisition. Rod, there are already two expansions in de- development, I believe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Without getting that. ahead of ourselves, do we and when do we see a Diablo Five? <laughs> no, you're definitely getting ahead of yourself. Um, you know, this one of the things that we're really excited about is, you know, this is just representing the beginning of the of the Diablo 4 experience. You know, this is when we launched this, it was after many years of development, but it really is a game that when we think of the launch as the beginning and not the end. And so what we're seeing is like we're continuing to invest in years and years of live service. So we're going to have quarterly seasons. We're going to have expansions that I talked about. We already have two in flight as, as I talked to you today. And so we're really focused on making sure, you know, we have all the content that players want. It's Players now are very consumptive. They really want to have new content all the time. And it's quite a different model. I've been making games for, you know, 24 years. And it's really changed into gaming as a hobby and as a lifestyle where they always want to know what's next. What's the next thing I get to do in your game? And so we've been really focused on building this great foundation that we can now support for years to come. It is about bringing different people into gaming and indeed you said diversifying the way in which you access it. What about Max? I mean, you've had a rather famous player, Whoopi (laughs) Goldberg, coming out and saying, you know, how can I access it? And ultimately, look, at the moment she's wanting, what, some fully-fledged port, which is unlikely. How do people play it if they're in a Mac? Uh, I think there are ways to do it. Like, I don't know that I can officially sanction them, but with some, you know, proper searches, I'm sure you can find a way to make that happen. Um, Yeah, it's really about, you know, when you look at different platforms, you have to look at not only the cost of doing it, but just the opportunity cost about where you're spending your time. And when you think about how many more platforms you support and all the testing you have to do and how you... You know, one of the things of being a live service is we have to be able to update the game really quickly. And mm-hmm. the more platforms and the sort of the broader you go, the harder it is to be agile and responsive. And so, you know, we never say never. It's something, you know, we're always aware of. But like right now, that's that's not one of our supported platforms. Where is disruption or indeed headaches for you at the moment, Rod? I think of just the amount of people, talent, new material that you want to bring in to your sphere. I'm thinking of the upending of content production that's currently happening in the world of movie making or script writing and, and people wanting to see more benefits. I'm worried also about generative AI. We think about how that's going to eventually be influencing the world of gaming. How do you lean into that? How do you ensure this macro environment isn't stopping you from growing at the pace you need and want to? Yeah, it's really about sort of understanding what your demands are for the content that you have and the team size you need because 
as I was saying, you know, 20 years ago when I made a game, you finished it and you went on vacation because there's nothing else you could do about it. And today you finish a game and the next day the players want to know what's new. Uh, and so you have like to be yeah, so, yes. like, so you have to keep, you know, you have to be able to have your team size and your team processes yeah. and and organizational structure to be that you can work sustainably like you and that's the big focus for us, you know. We when you're working on a game like this, we're working on the main game right now, but season 1 is finishing up development season two development is almost done expansion one expansion two so we have all these parallel teams well i'm sorry i've got to jump in i've got to ask you about end game there are lots of people not happy about tweaking of end game (laughs) the process of that your response very quickly uh, we're day 10, right? And so, like I said, we're going to be supporting this game for years to come. So there's going to be, when you have 350 million player hours applied to the game, you're going to find some things that aren't working quite the way you want them to. So we're taking the, like these early times to build a solid foundation and that we can then grow on top of. So there's lots of great stuff. We're actually doing a dev stream this afternoon that we're going to be talking to our players directly about it. Uh, now that this interview's done, I will be playing on PlayStation 5, by the way. Rod Ferguson, General Manager, Head of Diablo Universe. Thank you so much. Caroline. Oh, what a fully-fledged edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. There's more to come. Yes, yeah, so much more. Recap the whole week on the podcast, wherever you get it. Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Twitter Spaces. 30 minutes time on The Big Take on AI. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.